Alright, well hello and welcome back to Views from the Crow's Nest, a podcast about current or emerging trends in finance, technology, data science, and various other domains of the business sector. This podcast is produced in-house for Fisher Jordan, a New York-based strategy consulting, thought leadership, and outsourcing firm helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. We provide decision makers in financial services and healthcare with clear strategies backed by analytics and enabled by tailored technology solutions. The Mess Hall is a sub-series we do on Views from the Crow's Nest, which is sometimes the Monday Mess Hall, other times it's the Midweek Mess Hall, but it's always the Mess Hall. As much as possible, we try to record, edit, and release the conversations in the same day, so often, not always, often, whatever you're hearing in a Mess Hall episode was just recorded that same morning. We do still do our full-length episodes where we interview subject matter experts, but for the time being, mess hall conversations are just between Fisher Jordan team members and are a little more off the cuff and focus more on current events or more time-sensitive topics than the trends that we discuss in those longer-form episodes. We do give ourselves a few hours to research the topics ahead of time, thus we can truthfully say that we are not getting on a podcast and having discussions about things we know nothing about, but neither do we claim expertise on some of these things either. As we often say, although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point. Here on the Mess Hall, not necessarily finding solutions. My name is Nathan Johnson, and I ask the questions. In this episode, I'm joined by Fisher Jordan Managing Partner Boaz Salik, who acts as my co-host here on Views from the Crow's Nest, and Senior Analyst Deba Goyal. We do a post-mortem on a very successful marketing campaign for Grubhub that unfortunately is the only successful aspect about it, and we talk about why. We speculate about the effectiveness of equities as a hedge against inflation using Berkshire Hathaway's investment strategy in Q1 of this year as a launching point for that topic. And finally, we wrap it up with an exchange about digital health innovations and what a digital health marketplace might have to look like to take off and do well in this country and in this time. That is it for the setup, the preamble, the what have you. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome, as always, to the mess hall here on View. From the crow's nest. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to what is now another episode of our midweek mess hall series, uh, rescheduled from a couple weeks ago, uh, picking up our topics that we would have had on June 1st, but still relevant for uh, this window of time that we're in. Today, I'm joined by Deba Goyal and Boaz Salik, as always. Great to have you here. Welcome to the discussion. Thank you for having us. Good to be here as usual, Nathan. So here's what we're getting into today. Um, first, we're going to look back a little bit to now it's about a month out from this happening. A specific New York story uh, was part of the interest that I had in this. Um, but there's also some interesting implications about tech strategy. We're going to talk about uh, a basically a, a failed promotion, a, fa- a breakdown in communication between Grubhub and New York restaurants. Grubhub ran this $15 lunch promotion in New York, but they didn't tell the restaurants that they were going to do it. So basically chaos ensued and, you know, there were all kinds of restaurants that were not staffed properly for the influx of demand of the entire city of New York ordering lunch all at once. Orders were canceled. People were waiting like way too long. It was it was a fiasco. And 
and it made me curious and i wanted i wanted to talk about this here do you do you two think that incidents like this are kind of a given for and i don't know if it would just be for third-party food delivery entities like grubhub there's uber eats doordash i i wonder if there's crossover with any of these other domains where you have these third-party players kind of getting involved and they're they're interfacing with with other businesses i maybe uber doesn't quite fit this model but i just i wanted us to kind of to probe that and be like okay this this event happened do we think that that's kind of a hallmark of the model just kind of a one-off fluke um i'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah it's interesting i guess the first thing that pops into mind with this thing is why why did grubhub even have to do this right because it's it's like the whole world uses grubhub everyone knows about grubhub you know there's a lot of restaurants that only go through grubhub or one, one of their competitors so it's obviously not they obviously don't need the publicity so i'm guessing probably someone in there ran some analytics and said oh you know we have lower share of lunch volume than we have of of uh dinner volume or something like that so let's let's do something to move the needle uh and then the response was obviously a lot more overwhelming than what they anticipated which from a marketing perspective someone probably feels like oh that was a successful marketing campaign but obviously from an operational perspective it looks a little bit different yeah the marketing was great <laughs> the, the execution was terrible then maybe that's the story there is is uh the disconnect between marketers and uh the the actual operational elements of that require the campaign to actually like leave satisfied customers yeah and was is correct in how he actually thought the marketing department you know came up with this campaign they actually ran a survey wherein they found that 69% of the new yorkers that skipped lunch and 81% of them said that they value lunch a lot but they don't get the time to do it they don't get a break so that's why they thought up and came up with this campaign of how they want to give a free lunch to the people but obviously they didn't anticipate or project the demand correctly and the execution was not as good so for example a cafe who usually on grubhub gets less than 10 orders a day started getting more than 50 orders in one hour and then there were labor shortages and the supply chains are not that robust that they'll get immediate supply for food so they couldn't deliver those orders and the orders were canceled and the customers were waiting so you don't necessarily think that this is intrinsic to third party delivery apps and this is kind of like set up and and it was a matter of time before something like this happened this is more a fluke of a really good marketing campaign that somehow did not bridge the gap with their suppliers i just wanted to to make sure that i'm i'm hearing you both properly there and and uh see if you think that this is kind of innate to those those business models or just kind of a one off thing and definitely from uh if you look from a digital economy perspective especially these decentralized types of services where you know i'll provide the platform and you provide the service and this other person will provide the you know the it and you know the customers will come and everyone will be happy 
seems like it would be harder to coordinate something like that versus, you know, if you just owned a restaurant and ran a promotion, you'd probably check with your kitchen to see what the maximum volume they can accommodate. Uh, speaking of which, I don't think, did you guys see any numbers for what the actual volume ended up being? So they were saying that Grubhub actually had 6,000, more than 6,000 orders per minute like during the three hours that they actually launched the campaign. 6,000, so 30, wow, 360,000 orders per hour, so a million orders, basically. Boaz, were you one of those orders? I'm curious, did you contribute to no, this? thankfully. <laughs> and a, a million orders, and then you have to assume that not all of those were fulfilled, right? So if you assume at least half of those were dropped, half a million orders, I kind of wonder if they even budgeted, you know, seven and a half million for the promotion so there might be someone in the finance group that may be slightly unhappy now as well but yeah it's uh it's pretty interesting to see because because new york when you think of new york you do think of pretty broad availability of restaurants and food in general i mean every day is starting at like you know 3 a.m you 2 a.m 3 a.m you can start seeing the food trucks piling in through the bridges and tunnels to supply the next day's worth of uh, food needs for New Yorkers. So you, you never think of New York as a place that's that's short on food, at least under normal circumstances. It's pretty interesting to see that just through the simple promotion, one of these apps can basically bring New York's food uh, generating capacity to its knees. All about volume and time, right? Like normally that stuff would be spaced out, I think over over a period of time rather than like concentrated in a three-hour window where you just you just cannot meet realistically cannot meet that demand i'm trying to think of like of something comparable and i'm imagining if something like expedia or kayak or some of these third-party travel websites somehow ran a promotion that was like they were offering ten dollar flights or something and didn't tell the airlines or something so then every flight was overbooked and just absolute madness ensued. But I don't know if that's if that's comparable because obviously that those have been around for a while and worked out. But anyway, um, it was worth talking about. I, I couldn't help but laugh because it just felt so dumb that it even happened. But I think there's also a lesson in there to, to be uh, explored a little bit. Well, our main topic that we have for today, um, where I think we'll spend the most time, here we are in June, uh, looking back on, uh, well, I guess this would be this would be more in like Q1 22, or yeah, 22. We're going to launch off of Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's asset buying spree. We're going to put that in quotes. Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway entered into multiple new investment positions as a hedge against inflation and to capitalize on opportunities during a sell-off, potential sell-off. Um, again, we're linking everything, any article that we found that like started this discussion, we're going to put in the show notes as always. Anybody who wants to check that out. Now, normally we do not, we don't really talk about individual investors or even when we talk about Elon Musk or anything like that, we're trying to get to kind of the broader discussion. So we're not necessarily going to talk about Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway specifically, um, but more the implications of this position. So where we're going to discuss is if you assume that inflation numbers won't vanish overnight, 
and we may be entering a prolonged period of medium to high inflation. Let's talk about that strategy, the Warren Buffett strategy, the way to go. Like, is that the way to go? Getting out of cash, getting into equities. Um, there's some other questions that we can kind of push this discussion a little bit further with, but let's start there and see what you two think. Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, uh, like their buying spree can be linked to two things. Firstly, that the markets at that time were not doing well, so markets have been going down. And second is obviously inflation. And Buffett is the one who always prefers to buy when the markets are beer and then sell when the markets are bullish. And if we see the stocks that he bought out, so they are particularly in those particular sectors or those particular stocks which are actually undervalued at that time or relate to commodities which could be considered as a good hedge against inflation so they he bought they bought stocks for oil or like chevron and the undervalued stocks would include the ones like hp and now if we are to talk in the broader sense as to can we use equities as a hedge against inflation then I think that this strategy of when you are buying the stocks, which are actually undervalued and you think that the company can deliver good returns over a period of time, you get them at an undervalued price when the market is going low, can be a good hedge against inflation. So, uh, yes, yeah, I saw an interesting uh, interview with Charlie Mondra. I, th I think it might have been on Yahoo Finance. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it might have been there. This was already... Probably, it was probably already like at least three months ago, if not longer, where he talks about inflation and he, he basically makes the case that there's, a, there's always conversation around democracies, like why did, does democracy work here and not in other places? And one of, the, one of the questions that always comes up is what are the threats to a democracy? And the, the point he makes is that one of the biggest threats for a democracy is if and when the population figures out that they can vote themselves some money, right? So the classic example is like Greece and over the last 10, maybe even 20 years or so since they joined the EU, they, they figured out, oh, we have a democracy. Uh, we'll just get these different, and they have a, a bunch of political parties, not just two over there. And we'll just get them to compete in terms of who can promise us the most, you know, whether it's, you know, social benefits or retirement benefits or, you know, just good old stimulus checks or whatnot, um, unemployment, et cetera. So, so in Greece, you kind of have this, um, you know, ongoing bidding war between politicians on who, who can promise the population more, um, you know, kind of government-sponsored um, money, for lack of a better word. And now that they're on the, on the euro, you know, there, there are obviously some limitations to that. But he also gives the example of, of you know, some, some failed democracies in Central and South America. And his point is that if, if we don't watch ourselves, we may find ourselves on that track as well. Why? Because we, have, we obviously have inflation. It's been going on for well over a year, year and a half now. Everyone keeps talking about how transient it is, but despite the best efforts to, I'm, I'm sure a lot of effort goes into massaging the CPI numbers, but despite those efforts, the numbers don't seem to be cooperating and the, you know, they keep going up. So, um, you know, his point is that like, once you get into that kind of expectation, so people are expecting inflation because they're expecting inflation, then they're going to require the government to 
give more benefits, spend more money, et cetera, you can kind of get on this on this cycle relatively easily and then it can be very hard to get off of because it's painful. You know, it's gonna require cuts to government spending, cuts to social programs, recession and all that good stuff. Um, so his, and then he goes on to their investment thesis and he says, okay, our investment thesis here at Berkshire is basically that one of the investment theses we have is that the value of the US dollar over the next 50 to 100 years is going to zero essentially, meaning it's a dollar 100 years from now is going to buy you almost nothing compared to what a dollar today can buy you, which already isn't much. And so if you look at the kind of stuff they're buying, th there are two questions here really. One is, is what are they buying? And the second is when are they buying it, right? So if you look at the what, it seems to align perfectly with what Mandra is saying because they're, they're buying equity in companies that have strong pricing power in the market, right? So they're buying you know, financial services like Citibank and Ally Financial. They can always raise the rates that, that they charge on their loans in response to the prevailing interest rates. So there's some kind of good in, inflation um, hedging there. Uh, media like Paramount is, is always, you know, media companies always perform well because they have strong pricing power and also just generally as, as um, you, you kind of have this movement towards increased government in, intervention and increased uh, government footprint as, as a share of the overall economy, media companies become more and more important because they tend to be the arbiters of, of political decision making. So that's that that seems to align well with with the paradigm that he's talking about uh, and then energy companies like chevron again like they uh, th there's some limits to pricing power at the pump in the near term but over the long term it does tend to align with, with kind of the underlying cost so the decisions they're making seem to align pretty well with you know what you would expect someone to be to be buying if they believed that they were going into a long-term inflationary environment, which Berkshire seems to believe. Um, in terms of the timing, you know, I would say in retrospect, probably not optimal because the market's gone down a lot since they went into these positions. And on a look forward basis, also, you know, the, a lot of analysts believe there may be additional downside in the stock market. Uh, if you look at valuations relative to interest rates, which you know interest rates do tend to be primary driver of, of overall stock market valuations, you can see that the valuations are still close to record highs when adjusted for interest rates. Why? Because interest rates have gone up a lot faster than equities have gone down. So even though we're, we just entered a bear market yesterday and not, you know 20% drawdown on the S&P, et cetera, um, interest rates have gone up a lot more than that. So when you look at valuations relative to interest rates, they still seem very high, which tells you that there may be additional downside um, unless, unless interest rates come back down again, which uh, it's hard to see a reason why that would happen. So timing wise, you, you, you could probably, you know, you could probably split hairs with them on like, why did you go, why did you go in at that point? I mean, it's worth noting that even though they've been spending tens of billions, they, still have the lion's share of their cash reserve intact. So I, th I think they've probably spent about 20 or 30% of, of their free cash, but they still have a lot sitting on the sidelines. So that, you know, if they need to, to make further moves, they, they'll have the ability to do that. Something that I'm, I'm curious about, and uh, feel free to jump in, Deba, if you have any, any remarks that you want to make to what Boaz just, just shared here, but uh, kind of building on what you were saying, do you, 
Boaz, do you feel like there are better options than equities to get rid of cash in an inflationary environment? Uh, and part of why I'm wondering that is because you and I had a discussion a little while ago about will equities today still perform the same as like in the 70s just because of how leveraged people are today? Um, so, And then when you say that they still, that Berkshire Hathaway still has most of their cash reserves, that kind of begs that question even further, I think. So historically, the best thing to be in an inflationary environment is gold. There's a problem with gold, which is that, you know, it, gold made a big run up in, in the 2008 financial crisis, as you would expect, an environment where the government is, um, you know, creating a lot, a lot of new money. The issue is that since then, it's been basically flatlining, um, despite you know, tons of, uh, you know, you had the, the quantity, different tranches of quantitative easing in, in the, you know, 2010 to 2020 timeframe, QE1, QE2, QE3, uh, Fed balance sheet balloon. Then you had tons of additional stimulus, both, both from, the, from a fiscal and monetary perspective during COVID. And you'd think all that extra money sloshing through the system, chasing a relatively fixed amount of gold should drive up gold prices. That's what logic would tell you. But the reality is gold prices have been flatlining. So there's, a, there's an open question in the marketplace, and I'm not going to get into all the different conspiracy theories on what could be going on. I'll just say that the reality of how gold has been behaving over the last 10, 12 years is different than how you would expect it to behave in, in an inflationary environment and in an environment where there's a lot of new money being created all the time. And so if you look on a longer time frame, like let's say you look at the last 50 to 100 years, what you want to be in during inflation is gold. If you look at more recently, gold hasn't been doing what it's supposed to. And so then the question becomes, okay, what becomes the substitute for gold, right? Like if if people aren't treating gold as the inflation hedge that it once was for whatever reason. And so, you know, then you, you end up with three possible answers. It's either equities, fixed income, uh, or some other commodity, right? Like whether it's real estate or some people think Bitcoin is the new gold, which again, I'm not going to get into here. Fixed income, you can pretty easily take off the table because that usually performs the worst in an inflationary environment. So then the question is, is it going to be equities or is it going to be some new commodity? And there are probably people on both sides of the table. I think from a Berkshire perspective, I think there are strong proponents that uh, inflation doesn't have to necessarily be bad for equities in the long run, as long as you have the right kinds of equities. So companies that are um, that have pricing power, basically, right? There's an open question whether that's still true, just given the fact that when you look at equity valuations, that they're at record highs, and and uh, a lot of people believe the reason that valuations have been going up so significantly over the last 20 years is because of record low interest rates. And so that then points you to the fact that a lot of this equity um, appreciation has been the result of people buying, uh, people and companies essentially buying equities on, on loan, right? So let's say a company takes on leverage, takes on additional debt on its balance sheet, and then uses that debt to buy back its shares, which has been going on a lot. And generally, if you're, if you're buying something on, on loan and interest rates go up, that tends to hurt that, that asset. Like the, you know, the classic example would be what real estate crash in, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Why? Because 
people had a lot of adjustable rate mortgages, interest rates started ticking up, they couldn't afford the mortgage payments, and then they had to sell at a discount. So there, there is a question whether, again, like if you look at the, the history before 2008, you could say, yeah, equities do okay during inflation, but also the history before 2008 doesn't include as much buying of equities um, using debt. As, as you've had since 2008. So, so there is definitely an open question whether that paradigm continues or not. Worth noting, I suppose, uh, maybe we don't need to say it, but this is pure speculation that we're doing here. Uh, we're not delivering any investment advice to anybody who might be listening, just you know, covering our bases there. Um, it is an interesting discussion, and it's, if nothing else, uh, it's an interesting review of a strategy of obviously of a very well-known, well-respected investing Titan. Um, and the, the gold thing is really interesting to me. Anytime things are, are not doing what they would kind of be expected to do. I'm definitely curious about that and wondering why that is. And of course the reasons could range from the innocuous to the, to maybe something a little bit more, peculiar at the very least like now we have most uh, if not all i think um voices that matter kind of agreeing that we're we're looking at a longer term inflationary period than maybe we had had suspected a while back looking at some more longer term strategies is probably the move here well we'll wrap up with a very different topic uh probably connects a little bit more to uh, our first topic in terms of things becoming digitized, I suppose. Uh, we have talked a little bit on this podcast before about healthcare technology. Um, we've commented on the the generally slow pace of adoption of new technologies in healthcare. It's a very large, complicated industry. Um, there's a lot of different things that, that go into it. So it's we're not going to get on our microphones here and just continually bring up examples of here's another way that, you know, healthcare technology is is not meeting expectations. Um, but we're going to respond to an op-ed that was discussing the idea of a more of a, a healthcare marketplace approach uh, as a way to make digital health more viable. Some context there. Uh, patients and employers alike, uh, employers because of their need to prov to provide uh, insurance benefits to their employees, um, where that takes place, they're burdened under the weight of too many options and services that they don't know how to navigate. That's wording from the op-ed that we're we're responding to. Um, so contrasted with other domains where digital innovation has helped eliminate the problem of user uncertainty you know, healthcare has been slow for some of the reasons that we've just discussed. Um, the op-ed posits that digital health success depends on a more holistic picture of a patient's record, their background and individual experience to basically customize their treatment options. Um, in some ways, it almost reminds me of uh, like credit decisioning, mortgage applications, um, maybe auto insurance customizations. Um, those sorts of approaches, but applied more to a healthcare context. So do we think that similar strategies uh, like those things that I just mentioned, credit decisioning, mortgages, auto insurance, 
um, that they're, they seem to be recommending? Do we think that that can work for healthcare? And why might that marketplace strategy succeed or fail? That's kind of my, my intended uh, direction here for, for our wrap-up topic. Um, go ahead and sound off, see what you think. So you're saying, do we think that some of the innovations in analytics or some of these other areas could be successfully applied in the healthcare sphere? Essentially, yeah, because the, the op-ed that we're responding to, it basically says that the part of the reason why uh, digital health, th things like app or screen-mediated healthcare delivery, why those have not really taken off in any meaningful way um, is because to do so, they would need to take in a little bit more of a holistic picture of um, maybe a patient's like social context, some more data about their own history um, that is not really properly leveraged in the digital health context right now. It's and there it's mostly kind of siloed away in terms of like what digital health actually is rather than being a yeah that more holistic approach if we see currently uh, of the four trillion dollars annual u.s healthcare spending there's actually 200 billion that's actually spent on treatments that are unnecessary and most of the healthcare spending that's come is actually borne by the insurers and the employers so uh, when nathan you mentioned that uh, both the employers as well as the consumers they are both wanting to more accessible and reasonable kind of cheap and better healthcare services that's that can be provided through digital health so if we see right now there's one uh, provider of services like fitness trackers which keeps all the tracks of the data like what activity has the patient been doing and all those kind what how their vitals have been doing and their all of this data is actually not available to the healthcare providers. If the doctors want to see, like, can we actually use this data and apply some kind of deep learning or machine learning it to actually generate to see, okay, that these are how the symptoms might show up. They cannot relate to that. So that data is not shareable right now. Even if it's anonymized, they don't know it. And the treatments that are being provided in that respect are not personalized. So if we have a system which is kind of more integrated so the data is more interoperable and that data can be shared and then the treatments can be more personalized that would lower the cost for everyone in the system and help us provide better services and actually reduce that kind of preventable healthcare spending so you see an opportunity for things like digital health to to start to um reduce incidents of things that I, I think they would call low value care, right? Correct. Yeah, that's very interesting. The, th the thing with um, some of these other technologies like, you know, credit decision, decisioning and marketing on like politics, et cetera, is that a, lo a lot of the progress has been made in the direction of, it it's usually kind of like a, either a single provider or, or sometimes maybe two providers if you count like say a credit card issuer and credit card network as being two different providers but usually it's just a lender who's uh you know who's trying to give money or a service provider trying to offer a service and so they they use kind of advanced analytical techniques to figure out um who needs the service how 
how, how should they be approached, how profitable they be, et cetera. What happens in healthcare is because it's a multi-party system, it's not just multi-party, it's multi-layer as well, right? Because if you look at healthcare, you know, there's the, let's call it the wellness layer, which is just kind of ongoing, like, you know, what kind of exercise you're doing, what kind of medications you're taking, what kind of food you're eating, et cetera, like how, how are you treating yourself, right? Then there's like, what happens if something goes wrong? So then there's a diagnostic system, right? Which includes a bunch of stuff. It includes your primary care physician, it includes radiology, it includes a bunch of stuff like that. But there's there's kind of like a whole diagnostic sector within the healthcare system. And then there's the treatment sector, which includes drugs, it includes, you know, surgeries, other types of procedures, it includes hospitalizations, et cetera. So, and then within each of those, you have multiple providers that have to work together effectively in order to deliver, you know, the right level of, of uh, care for a patient. So, um, you know, if if I were to kind of go in and diagnose exactly why, um, you, you know, this article kind of makes the case that digital health has been unsuccessful, which I kind of disagree with. I think it has been successful in certain areas. I would argue the areas it's been the most successful in are the areas where you can kind of narrow down the service to a single provider or maybe like two providers working in tandem maximum. But when, once you get to um, a lot of um, a lot of parties and a lot of providers having to work together and be coordinated, I feel like that's where you just kind of just start to push the limits of what the digital technologies can mediate at the current at the current time. Yeah, it actually kind of starts to get back to the the problem we were running into with our first topic, where depending on how many how many how many different points do you need information sharing to go smoothly, you know? Um, and of course, that's it's hard to think of, of a context that has more points of crucial information sharing necessary than healthcare, where uh, even just thinking about something of a, a scenario like somebody moves away and they need to contact like their old doctor to get uh, radiology results from a previous test. And there's there's this need, all this stuff that's kind of very Byzantine built into the background um, to then introduce a a digital tool that can successfully navigate all of that while still factoring in that patient wellness layer that you talked about Boaz. Um, it, it gets hard to, to make that, that work in every context for every patient, I think. And maybe that's the, that's the way forward is that it continues to be a smaller scale undertaking that just gets better and better at doing those that then can expand outward. But, I think a lot of the time the problem that we run into is kind of thinking that the the thing there's going to be this one little switch that we can flip and it's like healthcare's fixed now. <laughs> we brought in this this one digital uh or not not I don't mean to oversimplify it but um having worked in a a digital health uh context at one point uh, and remembering kind of our ambitions there, um, I do think that uh, there's there's a tendency to to bite off more than you can chew uh, in this context, rather than like 
zeroing in and doing doing one aspect really really well and then seeing how that can potentially scale up um just those are just some of my thoughts on it i don't know i don't know how much that contributes to what's going on here i mean if you look at the basic economic realities of healthcare there, there's kind of like this overarching um theme that that i think has, has been one of the primary drivers if if not the primary driver of the fact that healthcare keeps going up by i think it's been going up by an average of 15 percent per year for the last 30 years or something crazy like that right you have to ask yourself why because it obviously didn't do that throughout human history otherwise all, all of us would be doctors and nurses right um and the the basic kind of the basic equation is that the fact that um you can you can apply science and um you know you can find things that either Im improve the condition improve quality of life or extend the life of a majority of people so so then now you have an equation where okay i i can go out if i had infinite resources i could extend the life and improve the life of a majority of people and not only that but the set of remedies and the, the set of treatments can continue growing over time right um and then that puts you in a position of saying well we don't have infinite resources unfortunately and therefore someone has to be there and, and kind of press the stop button at some point and i think as a society we're kind of still struggling with how do you do that in a humane and in a way where most people can accept as as being fair and, and rational so i think that's that's probably kind of like the underlying equation then all these problems that we see on top of that about um you know whether it's digital health or you know whether it's you know uh, medicare and all, all the associated incentive systems and and you know attempts that the government is making to help incentivize pro pro providers in the right way and then the whole all, all the industry dynamics and the provider side as well I, th I think they're all kind of subservient to this overarching trend that we i don't think we've really grappled with, with the issue in a complete way yet an ongoing conversation it sounds like not one we're going to solve here today but uh i always appreciate getting into this kind of stuff with you guys and and i very much value your contributions to to the discussion the discussion is the point on the mess hall thank you thanks nathan that's it for this episode of views from the crow's nest as with any other podcast if you enjoyed what you heard here today we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson, and from all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening, and we will see you from the crow's nest. Mm -hmm.